Canada and gives advice to the Prime Minister on matters of great importance. And indeed, Mr. Clerk, I would submit it is highly unusual, highly unusual, that you would be taking such a meeting with an individual company. You're a very busy executive in the country. I, I find it surprising that you would have so quickly after they're turned down a meeting with SNC-Lavalin and yet not have them tell you that they were rejected by the Director of Public <coughs> Prosecution. Is that your testimony, that they did not tell you? I don't know whether they did or not. I can tell you that the company asked for meetings uh, with me several times. I make it a practice to meet with a lot of people who ask for meetings, union leaders, NGO leaders, indigenous leaders, provincial officials. Uh, I meet with a lot of people, and I meet with a lot of company, company uh, as well. That is Lisa Rate questioning Michael Wernick, the clerk of the Privy Council at the Commons Justice Committee yesterday. After all that, as I said before, it is imperative that Jody Wilson-Raybould be allowed to speak freely and as freely as possible. Hopefully that happens on Monday. We need to pause. When we return, we'll have more of London Live. This is Devin Peacock in for Mike Stubbs on Global News Radio 980 CFPL. Welcome back to the program, everyone. Uh, before we move on, I should add uh, to my hope that I just raised last segment uh, that Jody Wilson-Raybould would be allowed to speak freely when she appears next week. Uh, I was saying Monday, maybe it's Tuesday. Hopefully it is next week. Uh, those hopes may have been dashed. It appears uh, doubtful that uh, the former Attorney General be, will be able to speak freely during a uh, potential appearance uh, before the uh, Justice Committee, Attorney General David Lametti was asked to repeatedly yesterday by opposition members of the committee whether he will provide recommendations on whether to waive solicitor-client privilege that were requested by Prime Minister Justin Trudeau uh, when uh, Wilson-Raybould appears before the committee. Lametti said that uh, during the appearance that before the committee matter could be fully raised, there were serious questions uh, that had to be answered about how prosecutions are carried out in Canada. The committee, as we've kind of gone over, is conducting a limited probe into these allegations of political interference by the Prime Minister's office into the criminal case currently underway against SNC-Lavalin, based on a report two weeks ago by the Globe and Mail. So here is, is a minute-long clip. Here is a back-and-forth between Conservative MP Michael Barrett and David Lametti. Uh, Mr. Attorney General, uh, both you and the Prime Minister have said that you're preparing a legal opinion on solicitor-client privilege in relation to the former Attorney General, Ms. Wilson-Raybould. Now, uh, lawyers I've consulted with say that solicitor-client privilege is far more limited uh, then your government appears to understand it applies only to communication between a lawyer and client for the purpose of giving or obtaining legal advice, not every single utterance. So you have the benefit of more than 5,000 employees at the Department of Justice, and they're at your disposal. So it's our understanding that uh, the former Attorney General, uh, Ms. Wilson-Raybould, will appear here. Will your legal opinion be prepared, be prepared in advance of that meeting? As, uh, as the former Attorney General has stated... The uh, question of solicitor-client privilege is complex and layered. Uh, there, will it be ready, is, will it be ready for Tuesday? Substantial debate. There, there is substantial the debate on the no. extent. Minister, is that a no? Uh, it is a continuum, and I can't answer the question because the question itself, the answer to the question is covered by solicitor-client privilege. So, based on that, we may have our answer. I, I hope, though, Wilson-Raybould will be allowed to speak and speak freely, but we shall see.
I also want to draw your attention to a new poll out on all of this. The poll found that the Trudeau government is leaking political support in the wake of this entire controversy, making their chances of re-election this fall far less certain than they seem to be just only a few months ago. This, according to a new poll, provided exclusively to Global News. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau's personal approval ratings are down. A declining number of Canadians think his government deserves re-election. And Andrew Scheer's Conservatives narrowly lead the Liberals on the ballot box question. Ipsos was in the field last week when the news came down that uh, the allegations, anyway, that while she was Justice Minister, Wilson Raybould felt that unnamed individuals in the Prime Minister's office were pressuring her to intervene in a criminal court case in favor of SNC-Lavalin. Those allegations were first reported by the Globe and Mail, citing unnamed sources. If she did feel pressured, she did not act and did not intervene on behalf of SNC-Lavalin, but a few months later she was shuffled out of her job as Justice Minister and Attorney General and into the job of Veterans Affairs Minister. Uh, Then last week, as the Liberals seemed to be a little bit divided over the optics uh, of seeing the country's first ever Indigenous justice minister being shuffled aside for what appeared to be uh, craven political calculations, Wilson-Raybould stepped down from Cabinet altogether. Meanwhile, throughout the week, Trudeau and other Liberals struggled to explain what had happened with all of this, and it appears voters have taken notice. Ipsos found that among the 1,002 Canadians it surveyed online from Thursday through Monday, nearly half, or 49%, said they were aware of this rapidly shifting story involving SNC-Lavalin, Trudeau, and Wilson-Raybould. It appears many are changing their opinion of the government as a result. Support for the Trudeau Liberals is now at 34% of decided and leaning voters down 4 percentage points from their last poll in December. In the 2015 election, the Trudeau Liberals won with 39% of the vote. Shears Conservatives appear to have benefited from the slide. The party is now at 36% support, up three points from the end of 2018. The NDP... Uh, Languishing, seventeen <laughs> percent support right now. They were at eighteen uh, percent last year. I should note that this poll came out on Monday before we had the news of Gerald Butts, uh, Trudeau's uh, best friend and close advisor, resigning. Uh, from the Prime Minister's office, so this uh, poll does not include that. In any event, Ipsos found that even before all of this, voter approval of the Trudeau government had dropped nine points since the beginning of year, down to 42% in its most recent pulse taking. Trudeau's own personal approval rating is now two points lower than it was after his trip to India this time last year. However, despite all this, Trudeau is still doing better than his two main rivals, personally, Sheer and Jagmeet Singh, who can continue to have lower approval ratings than Trudeau. And just 38% of those surveyed believe that the Trudeau Liberals deserve re-election, while 62% agree that it was time to give another party a chance at governing. What does all that mean? Probably that we're in for a wild ride on election night. We need to pause. When we return, we'll have more of London Live. This is Devin Peacock in for Mike Stubbs on 980 CFPL.
This is Devin Peacock in for Mike Stubbs. As you heard on 980 CFPL earlier this week, a new report from London Police revealed the number of use of force arrests involving a person with a firearm nearly doubled in 2018 from the year before. A total of 287 use of force reports were filed last year. That's up from 257 the year before that. But what really jumped out from the report for me was arrests involving suspects armed with a rifle, piston, or shotgun. They nearly doubled in 2018 from 2017, rose to 15% from 8% the year before. To talk about what could be behind this, we were joined by former London Police Chief Murray Faulkner, thanks for your time today. Very good, sir. Well, we've uh, we've had this increase in the number of uh, suspects armed with a gun. I'm particularly interested in the number of uh, suspects with a rifle, pistol, or shotgun. That almost doubled in 2018. Uh, why do you think we're seeing these these increases? Well, to to put it in perspective, the report that the London Police issued uh, was around the use of force, and and so what it indicated is. When police used a level of force, uh, there was an increase of over 20% of those people that they encountered that they had to use force on had a firearm. And, you know, there's, it's like everything in policing. There isn't one simple reason why uh, police are encountering more, more firearms. Uh, I think there is a plethora of reasons. One is, uh, for example, about three months ago, uh, the OPP, along with five other uh, regional police services, uh, disbanded, broke up a organized crime that was actually manufacturing guns uh, from legal parts. And so, although there's no serial numbers on guns to trace them on these illegal made guns, uh, over 120 guns they could... Uh, relate back to the manufacturing uh, of this organized crime, uh, for one example. I, I, listen, another example that people really don't want to talk about is this carding issue, in which uh, we now have in, in Ontario uh, the inability for police officers to do really proactive policing. And so I think, you know, the pendulum has swung way far left as far as public safety goes in the sense that You know, if you're a frontline police officer in Ontario and you stop and talk to someone at 2 o'clock in the morning or 3 o'clock in the morning or 11 o'clock at night, uh, the first thing you tell them is, uh, A, you don't have to talk to me, and B, you don't have to give me your name. So if you are at all a criminal, if you are a person that's carrying a gun, the first thing you're going to do is, thank you very much, officer, have a good day, and you just walk away. So there is, and even though Justice Tulloch issued a 300-page report that there's no statistical uh, benefit for carding or stopping and talking to people, frontline officers know that there is a a benefit to stopping and talking to people and gathering information. And and so now you have a police services across Ontario whose proactive policing is almost nil. And so it's very, very difficult to, I believe, uh, statistically show how police prevent crime rather than just react to crime in stopping and talking to people at 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning. Should, should this be a concern for people? Because, you know, sometimes when crime rates go up, it doesn't necessarily mean a city is more violent. It means, in some cases, people are just reporting crime more often and police can go to those. Oh, De- Devin, this, this is such a complicated issue about crime rates. I'm telling you that. So here's, here's a simple way to look at it. If you had more police officers on the street, 
or if you had more police officers able to do ride checks, in all likelihood, you would get more drivers for impaired driving and put the crime rate up. So when I added the, finished adding the extra 85 police officers uh, back in uh, 2007, 2008, we put the crime rate up. But in fact, a, high, a higher crime rate doesn't necessarily mean the city is less safe. I can reduce the crime rate by getting rid of the drug squad. You could reduce crime rates in a city by 20 to 25% yeah. by just not having a, a drug squad. But so, so to base crime rates on safety issues is really a red herring. It's, it's, um, it's very, very difficult to do that. Well, that's, that's kind of, so like, so if we have use of reports, use of force reports going up, does that, is, could that be viewed the same way as crime rates or is that slightly different? Well, no, no, I think it's, it's different in the sense that police have to be justified in using force. And so, um, so the people, so, so one, would, one would think that the streets are more dangerous if police are using more force, and, and that's, I think, one way to look at it. And so the other point is that this has this this slowly gone up after, I believe, the carding issue was enforced by, uh, by uh, the last government. For example... The London police stopped proactively two individuals in 2018. Well, I would say in 2014, they'd probably have stopped two or 3,000. For Toronto, for example, uh, in 2013, they stopped 196,000 individuals, stopped and talked to, and gathered some information. 2015 and 2016, they stopped nobody. Nobody. And so as a result of that... Those that are criminally uh, intended to do something bad, criminally minded, uh, over the last three or four years uh, have taken over, I say, the streets because police can't do their job. So these, this is some of the unintended consequences, I think, of the legislation that has happened. And, you know, I, the pendulum has got to swing back somehow to a more um, equilibrium so that police can do proactive policing in a non-discriminatory way in which police are trained to articulate why, in fact, they stopped an individual at 2 o'clock in the morning. And, and I think, you know, society can, is starting to see some of those results. Can you do proactive policing without cutting, or, or is it just more difficult without it? You know, society has labeled this thing carding or suspect sheets or observation slips. It's it's really proactive policing. That's what police is all about. And so if you don't allow police to do this, and, and of course, then police get caught up in the statistical information that they are racially profiling people. So I would say that 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 there's a whole bunch of social economic factors that play into policing that police have no jurisdiction or no control over, but society does. And so we get caught up in this uh, whole mantra of discrimination against visible minorities. And I will say that part of the problem is not not policing, but society itself and some of the issues that revolve around inequality in salaries, in housing, uh, in education, um, and so, which which police have nothing to do with, but we end up bearing the brunt of of the problems. I think there's a lot of small things, for example, in society that we need to look at rather than big, big solutions. Uh, you know, one of the things I say, Devin, is this: Look at, we have an issue on Richmond Row. 
So what did we do uh, as a society on Richmond Roll about urination? We made a bylaw that you can't urinate on the streets. But that doesn't take away the fact that when you come out of a licensed establishment and your uh, kidneys are busting, you'd need to go to the washroom. Why didn't we put in public washrooms rather than create a law? Well, we know that there's more fights waiting for taxis, so why have more police? Why don't you have more taxis to take people away or public transit so that people can get away from the bars? So we download a lot of these issues onto the police, but really there's other solutions to it that don't uh, involve police. It's uh, quite interesting, Chief. I certainly appreciate your time today. Thank you very much. Very good, sir. That's former London Police Chief Murray Faulkner. We need to pause. When we return, we'll have more of London Live. This is Devin Peacock in for Mike Stubbs on 980 CFPL. You're listening to London Live. This is Devin Peacock in for Mike Stubbs. I've said it before, and I'll say it again. Climate change is a big area of focus for me. I don't think we can cover too much. It's too wide-ranging. And so here's a question. Are you curious about what London's climate will be in a few decades? If you are, look about 1,000 kilometers south of us. New study came out last week that said 1,000 kilometers, give or take, is the average distance between 504 cities in the United States and Canada and the nearest city that currently has the climate they could expect. The study was co-authored by Matt Fitzpatrick of the University of Maryland Center for Environmental Science. His cities represent about 250 million people. That's more than three quarters of the United States population, more than half of Canada's. For each city, he used 27 climate models to determine what the climate is likely to be by 2080. He used both a business-as-usual scenario and one in which emissions are reduced. He then looked for a community which now has temperature, rainfall, and variability most closely matching that future climate. So... If nothing changes, he found Toronto could feel like Secaucus, New York by 2080. Quebec City would feel like present-day Chatham. London wasn't included in the study, but based on his map, which is online, we would generally have a climate currently similar to what they have in Chester, Pennsylvania. Matt Fitzpatrick joins us now to talk about this. Thanks for your time today. You bet. My pleasure. I thought this study was pretty interesting. Uh, what made you want uh, to look into this, and how did you figure out the right distance for what might be the accurate uh, uh, future climate for a whole lot of cities? Yeah, so, you know, the first question about um, what made us want to look into this. You know, I, I think the basic idea was um, the way that the projections of climate change are often communicated to the public are done so are done in kind of these descriptive abstract terms. We hear things about um, you know three degrees uh, C global mean temperature increases in the future and that sort of thing. Um, and those are, those are really kind of like psychologically distant um, and they're distant in time and, and often in space. So we wanted to translate those into something that we felt people would identify better with and and. So the way we chose to do that is we used an existing technique of climate analogs, and so we found locations that have climate today most similar to what we expect in, in um, cities in the future. And in terms of measuring those distances, 
um, you know, we, we often think about measuring distances between places, right, in terms of, you know, driving from one city to another, how many kilometers away is that city. And, you know, we could measure that with, um, you know, with a ruler if, if two objects were close enough together, right? But when we were measuring distances using um, climate instead of, uh, you know, kilometers or something like that, um, we just have to do some statistics to account for the fact that, um these climate variables are measured in different units, like degrees Celsius, millimeters of precipitation, that sort of thing. And we also have to account for the fact that um, unlike when we measure the distance between uh, two locations on the Earth, um, these variables, these climate variables are often correlated, and so we have to account for those correlations. But once we do that, it's, it's very similar. We're just measuring uh, the distances between two places in, in a climate space rather than a geographic space. You kind of got into it a little bit there, but what do you want people to take away from this? Well, you know, I hope um, that people have the same reaction I had when I looked at the city that I currently live in and, and say, wow, you know, these, um, these changes might be substantial where I live. Um, and, you know, even though we hear things like a three-degree C uh, increase in temperature or you know, the Paris Climate Accord trying to hold uh, increases in temperature to 1.5 degrees C, that that's still a lot of change. And, and I really hope that that point hits home. Um, the other point that I hope people take away is, uh, you know, on the, um, in the paper and on the web application, we uh, show results for two different emission scenarios, this high emissions that assumes we kind of continue the way we're, we are today, and then the second reduced emission scenario, um, and I hope people see that reducing emissions can have a large impact on the amount of climate change we expect to experience. I think it's interesting uh, how people um, respond to this, because on the one hand, I could see some people say, oh, what's like if you say Toronto to Secaucus, New York, which is where Toronto would be in about 60 mm-hmm. years, what's the difference? Because it's still New York and it's cold there, it's cold here, but there is a pretty big difference that is quite, you know, a geographical change. And even if you go to, say, like from Pittsburgh in 60 years, it might feel a bit like more like Arkansas. And, you know, 60 years in a way is and is not a long time from now. Yeah, I mean, I, and I think the other thing that I've heard people say is like, oh, wow, my city's getting warmer. That means, you know, winters won't be as bad. That's great. Um, and so, yeah, maybe we could view that as um, an opportunity of climate change that some people might perceive as as a positive. But if we look just a little bit deeper, you know, the rate of these changes that we expect and the magnitude of these changes are are very drastic. And that's going to have uh, massive implications for agriculture, like, you know, what we can grow, where, um, you know, drought, that sort of thing, um, impacts to natural systems. And of course, you know, we're not accounting for things like sea level rise that's going to greatly impact coastal cities. So, you know, I think the risks greatly outweigh uh, any opportunities that might might be seen as positive. It also has a different impact on people, too. You say, you know, back in my day, such and such. Well, you know, it, there could come a time where back in, you know, my day, you know, winter was a drastically different experience than it is for, you know, the people of 2080. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and, you know, we often hear that, you know, uh, especially people who have been ar- around for a long time and have lived through a lot of the changes that we've seen um, across the planet. One thing I, I think, too, is, you know, 
we're, we're talking about a, you know, from between now and 2080. So it's not a, a large amount of uh, time and say, you know, sometimes looking hundreds of years into the future or whatever the case might be. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we, you gave the different types of models in terms of what happens if we do this, what happens if we do that. Right. And, and to a certain extent, like this is like these, you know, projections are happening. We could, we could do things to lower our emissions and improve our environment, but still, you know, the, in, in certain cases, the die is already cast. It's, it's a little bit too late in terms of like the near future, but the long, the long-term future is something we could hopefully still have an impact on. That's right. I mean, we've already committed ourselves to a certain amount of change given uh, the, how we've already changed the composition of the atmosphere and have increased uh, heat-trapping gases. Um, and so, you know, the climate system is something that doesn't respond quickly. You know, you might think it's kind of like a cruise ship that takes a long time to turn. Um, so, yeah, you know, th- there are certain changes that, that are going to happen even if we start cutting emissions today. Um, the point is we want to try to avoid getting to a point where we sort of reach a point of no return, if you will, that, that we change things so dramatically that um, the impacts are so severe that cutting emissions are going to come, they're going to be too little too late. That's a good point, uh, Matt. I certainly appreciate your time today. Thank you very much. You bet, Devin. Have a good one. That's Matt Fitzpatrick, co-author of a study looking at where climates for individual cities in North America will be in 60 years. We need to pause. When we come back, we'll have more of London Live. This is Devin Peacock in for Mike Stubbs on Global News Radio 980 CFPL. We have just enough time to tee up the second half of the show. After the news, we'll be talking about autonomous vehicles. We'll be talking about the London airport. And we'll be talking about why people change their minds. It'll be an interesting little conversation. That and more in the second hour of the program. This is London Live and Devin Peacock in for Mike Stubbs on Global News Radio 980 CFPL. We are into the second hour of the program. Thanks for tuning in. I want to talk about automated vehicles for the next half hour because there was a very interesting presentation at London City Hall yesterday. Uh, The Rapid Transit Implementation Working Group met and heard from three experts on autonomous vehicles. The request to have them speak had been criticized as a red herring, but I think if you watched or heard what was said, it was quite informative. Automated vehicles aren't going to be available tomorrow, but neither will BRT. If we're planning for the future, why don't we actually plan for the future rather than plan based on the needs of today? So I was glad to see the conversation was held at City Hall on Thursday. One of the people who spoke was Barry Kirk. He's the executive director of the Canadian Automated Vehicles Center of Excellence. He joins us now. Thanks for your time today. You're welcome, Devin. I was really interested uh, by uh, the conversation at the committee meeting uh, yesterday with regards to automated vehicles. When do you think they will become a reality for when they are a reliable mode of transportation? The AV era has already started um, in, with low-hanging fruit. Um, in various countries around the world, Fully automated electric shuttle buses are in commercial use, um, carrying members of the public on a day-by-day basis. Um, these are low-speed, low-capacity shuttles, but they are commercially um, in use, which is a, a step forward. The next step will be in the early 2020s, you know, 2022, 23. we will see the first 
um, cars with no stain wheel in use in Canada. These will not be the, um, the ultimate go anywhere, anytime, in almost any weather. These will be driverless taxis that are geographically constrained to downtown areas, but they will be truly driverless, as I said, with no steering wheel, no pedals. Um, the ultimate, um, what's called technically a level five, which is a car that can go anywhere, anytime, in almost any weather, we'll see sometime in the 2030s. I mean, that, that is and is not a long time, really, you know, save it, save it's mid-2030s and 2035, that's 16 years from now. That's, that's not really a long time away. No, indeed. Um, I didn't show it yesterday at the committee meeting there, Devon, but in some of my longer presentations, I have two photos of Fifth Avenue in New York. In 1900, um, when there's horses and carriages everywhere, in 1913, um, there's been a revolution in transportation, and there's cars everywhere. And in just those 13 years, um, transportation changed dramatically, and it's happened once, and I think it'll happen again. Because, as you say, from, in 13 years from now, we're into um, 2032, um, and that will be um, a very different world, and the city of London will look quite different to what it does now. One of the things about automated vehicles, you know, that I've been trying to put in the conversation here has been uh, they are not an alternative to public transit, but I do think and they can be part of public transit, uh, even with automated buses themselves. But I, I also think that they are just going to be so attractive and appealing to people that with some of the projections we have for the number of people who might want to use public transit, depending on uh, how much it costs, uh, some people may prefer, you know, an automated vehicle of some sort where it's a ride share or whatever the case might be. So I, I, I just look at them as something that is going to be a disruptive force that people are going to be interested in, are going to want to use. Um, I agree. They are, it's a very disruptive technology, uh, just like the first cars were, you know, 110 years ago. Um, but, and I also agree with you there, Devon, what we don't have and what the City of London can choose between is there's a number of different um, options. There, there's traditional transit. Uh, there are these um, shuttle buses for 8, 10, 12 people. There will be um, smaller, fully automated driverless taxis for, let's say, three or four people. And this puts into the mix a range of things. And one of the challenges I believe facing the City of London is what's the optimum mix of um, those automated modes of transport, um, and bearing in mind, it's not just the next few years, whatever the City of London does will be there for, you know, 25 years or so, or more. From, from what you've seen of London's BRT plan, uh, what, does it make sense for 2030 and beyond, and, and how does it relate, to, if at all, with uh, autonomous vehicles? Well, at the moment, um, it does not in the sense that when the BRT plans were developed, um, AVs, autonomous vehicles, weren't really as well um, on the radar screen. I think five years ago, the BRT plans in London were um, spot on. But a lot has changed in five years. It's amazing, Devon, how quickly the technology has changed, has evolved. Uh, The landscape is... um, very different. And one of the things I said to the committee last night is a recommendation that they hit the pause button and just develop 
a modified vision for the future um, and based on those additional options, driverless taxis, um, driverless shuttle buses, and how they play into the mix and what the, what the optimum combination of all, all of that is. And I think the, the City of London, I told them, really needs a vision for what kind of mobility system they should have in, let's say, 2040. There's a lot of combinations that could be available. Uh, you know, Uber didn't really exist all that long ago. Now it's a mainstay. Who, who knows what kind of companies are even around in, you know, five, six years that are, are, are in this space as well? No, there's a number of different companies, certainly Uber, and Uber is very heavily invested in um, self-driving taxis. And what we see today is um, cars that are um, Uber cars that are really phase one of the business model. Phase two is Uber cars that have um, no driver. And at the moment, about 50% of the cost of an Uber ride goes to the driver. So when in the future Uber moves to phase two and doesn't need drivers, um, the theory is that the cost per ride goes down, which makes it very attractive. And that will create some more competition with traditional transit because with an Uber, you can go door to door, um, in one ride. And that, for some people, is very attractive. We are joined on the line by Barry Kirk, the Executive Director of the Canadian Automated Vehicles Centre of Excellence. You mentioned this yesterday and, and alluded to it earlier in terms of even, you know, public transit, you know, the idea of people going to a static location and being taken to another static location. Uh, there's those mini shuttles that people can take that are being tested in other areas. I, I imagine... You know, public transit of the future is going to be some sort of combination of, you know, main routes where people can go, but also being picked up at your door along with maybe 10 other people and dropped off along the way. Oh, absolutely. Um, And each city is different. Um, City of London is different to other cities. It's different to Ottawa, where I live. Uh, and really, I think the challenge for the, um, the committee and the City of London is to figure out what the optimum mix is and how you combine those different technologies and also to what extent London Transit um, should itself provide these other services and to what extent it should focus on the um, high-capacity traditional transit and leave Uber and shuttle bus services to the private sector. Um, so there's some some real important decisions to be made as part of the overall development of the vision. One of the the issues with public transit, especially with in buses in particular, maybe not trains and, and light rail transit, but with buses, is there's a stigma associated with that. You certainly don't have that stigma, I think, with you know autonomous vehicles. I wonder if if you have autonomous buses, autonomous transit of some sort, that kind of eats away at the stigma that people associate with public transit. Um, it, it, the potential is it'll eat away at the, um, the ridership. And the, in New York City, the Metropolitan Transit Authority, MTA, they in fact have identified in the last two or three years a 12% drop in ridership on transit, which exactly matches the increase in ridership of ride-sharing like Uber and Lyft. You mentioned earlier just how quickly uh, some of the the technology is moving on this. Is there a certain um, hump that the technology needs to get over? In particular, I'm I'm talking about maybe uh, driving in snow or adverse 
uh, weather conditions, that once that is dealt with, the technology maybe even speeds up even quicker? There's a number of technology um, issues which are well known. Um, certainly bad weather is one of them. Another is cybersecurity. Um, and a third is some of the real issues when we have um, on the roads. Um, one that I talked about is pedestrian prediction. If I go down, drive down the road, and I see somebody on a sidewalk um, focused on a smartphone, and they're walking towards the curb, I know there's a real danger that they're, um, you know, in another space and might walk onto the road. I can slow down in anticipation that they might walk onto the road. Um, computers at the moment are not as good as humans at predicting pedestrian behavior. Well, you, you mentioned this yesterday as well, just about maybe uh, autonomous vehicles can be uh, uh, and probably will be more s- safer than, than human drivers once the technology is figured out. But sometimes th- those safety improvements are a bit overblown. Very much so. Um, you're right. I mean, if you take the um, any sort of self-driving car, it will have a range of sensors, um, video, cameras, um, radar, LIDAR, and so on. And it'll do a scan, a 360-degree scan of the environment, maybe 30 times a second. And there's a, an awareness of the environment that no human could ever match. And also self-driving cars, computers, they don't get drunk, they don't get distracted, um, they're far more law-abiding. Um, and therefore they will be safer. And my prediction has been, and it still is, that we can eliminate 80, that's eight zero. we can eliminate 80% of the collisions and deaths, and that's wonderful. But there is too many people out there overhyping the technology, talking about AVs, totally eliminating collisions and traffic deaths. And that's unfortunate because now I'm an engineer, and I know that all hardware, all software fails occasionally, and that there will be ongoing collisions, deaths, injuries, unfortunately, but far, far fewer than we have today. Finally, uh, London does not have a full-time autonomous uh, vehicle expert, uh, should we? Definitely. Um, I have recommended to um, um, you know, the people I met with yesterday that you should have a, um, a full-time in-house expert. Um, the City of Toronto has one, uh, and I think that would really help to move forward. Um, and it's the bottom line is the City of London has an opportunity to really redesign and rethink what kind of city you want in the next 25 years. It's not just um, transportation and transit. It's citywide. It affects parking. It affects city revenues. It affects the police force um, and many other aspects. Um, there'll be downtown will be quieter, less pollution, um, and far more livable. So it affects zoning. Uh, there's other things you and I haven't talked about there, Devon, like autonomous delivery robots on the sidewalk. And those are being tested now for delivering pizza and other things. Uh, those um, are going to be disruptive. If you think about downtown area in Vashawa, and having these um, automated cooler size devices on the sidewalk, then that's going to be disruptive, and the city government needs to decide if they're going to regulate those, and if so, how. So there's a lot of different things happening, but it's, it's exciting, uh, and 
having an in-house expert will help them to steer through and navigate all those decisions. We are joined on the line by Barry Kirk, the Executive Director of the Canadian Automated Vehicles Centre of Excellence. I don't know if this is in your wheelhouse or not, but I once listened to a, a TED Talk, and they are even talking about, uh, you know, like autonomous mini flying cars or, or helicopters where you, you take, you know, a, an autonomous vehicle to one location, you get in, you get somewhere, and they, they fly you to another location. And so the idea of even flying autonomously in the, in the near future uh, has been discussed. I don't know how realistic that is, but it's, I've heard it discussed. It, it's very realistic. It's being worked on. Um, there's about 12 companies worldwide developing different versions of these, and they will be low-capacity um, vehicles, um, two, four, six, eight seats. Um, and as you say, um, the, the vision is no pilot, although there would be a pilot initially for safety reasons. Um, um, Boeing is developing one. Airbus has two separate teams developing different versions. Uber um, has announced in public that it wants to start demonstrating um, what they call Uber Air in um, 2022 and to start a commercial service in 2023. And they've announced two out of three cities where that service will start. Um, One will be journeys between Dallas and Fort Worth. The second is Los Angeles. The third, Uber has announced it wants to have an international city and I've recommended to Uber that they look at Montreal. Um, they do say that they want a city with at least 2 million people. So London, Ottawa doesn't qualify, but Montreal is a wonderful international city. Um, but that's my, um, what I'm advocating for. Uh, Uber has not announced a third one. The Uber vision, by the way, Devon, is to repurpose parking garages. You convert the top deck to a heliport, so you can drive to one of these parking garages and then go upstairs to the top deck and f- fly um, to another city in these um, personal aircraft, which are interestingly all electric and battery powered. So there's no noise um, compared to a regular plane. And it's initially going to be short haul, but I can envisage you know, by the end of the 2020s, people being able to go from, say, London to Toronto from one parking garage to another parking garage downtown um, using one of those um, you know, personal aircraft. It, it's quite fascinating. Uh, Barry, I, I certainly appreciate your time today. Uh, thank you very much. You're welcome, Devon. That's Barry Kirk, the Executive Director of the Canadian Automated Vehicles Centre of Excellence. We need to pause. When we return, we'll have more of London Live. This is Devon Peacock in for Mike Stubbs on 980 CFPL. Welcome back, everyone. We have just a few moments left before we have to get to the bottom of the hour news here because we went way long with Barry Kirk, but I thought it was worth it. Uh, that was a, I really enjoyed that interview with, with Barry, and I was really glad to see that uh, London had a couple of experts. They didn't all agree. They had different timelines for when they thought that uh, uh, autonomous vehicles would be available and, and what you could do with them, so they weren't all singing from the same songbook. I just think it was so important that London add this to the conversation because as we talk about modes of transportation in the city, people have been talking about vehicles, we've been talking about transit, we've been talking about cycling, we've been talking about pedestrians. We have not been talking about autonomous vehicles and they are coming. They are not an alternative 
to transit. I'm not saying they're an alternative to transit. If you're looking to reduce congestion, they may add congestion or leave it as about the same. It's hard to say. So I'm not saying they are an alternative to public transit, but they are coming. And the fact that London has not been doing anything on this until now, I think has been a mistake. And you even wonder, do we rethink what public transit is in 20, in 30 years? Does it have to be as robust as people think? Are private companies going to come in with autonomous vehicles, with different shuttles, with different ride-sharing uh, programs, with different whatever the case might be that eats into some of uh, the the interest in taking public transit? Barry Kirk seems to think to, think so. I would agree with that. I mean, I'm open to, you know, new information that suggests uh, something different, but I, I think I think we have to be just more open-minded than we have been on this transit uh, discussion. Five years ago, you could argue maybe a lot of what we're talking about now made sense, but that was five years ago, and the technology is rapidly uh, moving along here, and we are still planning as if it's 2015 for something that's going to be coming in 2028, 2030, and what does the world look like then? What does uh, the road look like then? I think it's going to look very, very different. So to me, it's not a red herring to talk about automated vehicles. If you're talking about them as a replacement for public transit, I wouldn't necessarily agree with that. But maybe transit isn't as robust as it is in the future, depending on what companies pop up. And we've talked about 5G in the past on this show in terms of what that could mean for technology and what companies come along. Because of 4G, we have Uber. What it comes with 5G, it's it's unknown. So there's a lot of unknowns in all of this. And transit is important. Rapid transit is important. But we can't forget about automated vehicles. And London having a full-time autonomous vehicle expert, I think, would be well worth the money as we plan our future for how we want this city to operate. I think we need to have that conversation. For all the talking we've done in London over this There's been very little talk on automated vehicles. They're not the cure-all, but they're part of the stew that makes up London for mobility. Uh, We need to pause. When we come back, we'll have more of London Live. This is Devin Peacock in for Mike Stubbs on 980 CFPL. Welcome back to the program, everyone. This is Devin Peacock in for Mike Stubbs on London Live. I want to talk about the uh, London International Airport because they are on quite the roll. Uh, Earlier this year, we uh, learned that Swoop was coming to London and would be adding some uh, new daily flights to Edmonton, Abbotsford, and Halifax. Now comes word there's going to be daily flights from Air Canada to Calgary. There are already flights direct from London to Calgary. That's with uh, WestJet. But we've got this Air Canada now daily flight starting on June 24th, going until mid-October. Uh, that'll be up and running soon as well. And the London International Airport has been on a roll. The past couple of years, the number of passengers that have been coming through the airport has been steadily rising. It seems as though they are setting a new record every single year for the number of passengers coming through. But uh, this year, they uh, could be looking like they're going to be shattering some of those records with uh, the number of people coming through. It's uh, been quite the story, and uh, the airport is hugely important to London. Obviously, as 
you know, a possible hub for people to come rather than go to uh, uh, Toronto, Detroit, maybe even Hamilton, but also just on the cargo side of things as well. London is just such a huge hub for this. And to have the international, uh, the London International Airport doing well is a major boon uh, for the city. Uh, To uh, talk about this, uh, we are joined by Mike Seabrook. He is the CEO of the London International Airport. Thanks for your time today. Yeah, good morning, Devin. Uh, I thought it was interesting, uh, this uh, release with Air Canada adding uh, daily non-stop flights to Calgary, uh, another addition uh, for the London International Airport. Yeah, we've certainly had uh, a busy uh, winter season for announcements. It's, uh, it's really good news. Um, you know, Air Canada's been our kind of our longest-standing uh, airline here at the airport, and they have been steadily increasing their flights here. And, uh, you know, I think in part because of uh, of the competition and in part because of the demand for their services uh, to Western Canada that they've decided to, to add this uh, daily flight to Calgary. So it is great news for us. Now, there have been uh, nonstop flights to Calgary in the past. I know this because I took one, uh, but yeah. this is uh, obviously uh, ramping that up a little bit. Yeah, well, uh, WestJet still has, today has, uh, has direct flights to Calgary, and uh, they'll continue in the summer. So... Um, this is really Air Canada's answer, and we have a lot of travel to Western Canada, you know, from from Alberta through to BC to Vancouver Island, and uh, you know, Air Canada is is somewhat of a different product than WestJet and, and even Swoop, and there's a lot of loyal Air Canada customers that are in southwestern Ontario. So, this new service uh, or this direct service to um, to Calgary. Uh, you know, provides uh, a, a really good option for those Air Canada loyal customers and, and others that are looking to travel out west. And this new service is going to be seasonal, right? Yeah, well, the hope in all of these, um, most carriers do announce a seasonal service, and and then they, based on the success of the route, they'll consider extending it. I mean, I, I think in a perfect world, Air Canada would love to operate this service on a year-round basis, and you know, obviously as an airport and a community, we should uh, welcome the opportunity. So, you know, our plan is certainly to do what we can um, to make it successful. And, you know, to uh, to the travelers that are in our catchment area, um, nobody likes driving to Toronto and, and Detroit and those other airports. So we've got competition now in our marketplace. We've got more nonstop flights. Uh, we're an easy airport to use. So we encourage everybody to use the service we have in London and that's really the only way we can uh, uh, make sure that we have this this service on a sustained basis. So it's important to support it. I won't uh, put the cart before the horse, but just because of, I mean, you, you mentioned already there's that kind of uh, already kind of built-in knowledge of Londoners flying to Western Canada, to Calgary. This seems like something where it's not like, uh, it's not like maybe a random flight if I was going to say, hey, I want to fly to, I don't know, Pick a, like you know, if I want to go to San Antonio, say you know, th- yeah. that, that's a bit more of a question mark. This a bit more of uh, there's some some data behind it. Well, certainly there there's uh, a ton of of, uh, of data behind it. Not only can you get to Calgary, but obviously Calgary is a hub for Air Canada, so you can get from Calgary, you can connect to all the Western Canada destinations, uh, and you could connect to the uh, to the U.S. as well, for that matter, and internationally as a, out of Calgary. But yeah, it's just not uh, just don't uh, to, to those who travel, just don't think of it as Calgary. Think of it as uh, as a direct uh, nonstop flight to Calgary with really convenient connections as well. Is there a particular reason why uh, Western Canada is a popular uh, spot for 
uh, Londoners or people to fly out of London? Or is it because maybe people don't want to go to Toronto and this is an easy way to do that? Or is, I'm just curious as to why that's so popular. Yeah, I think it's part of it. The uh, You know, it's been well uh, talked about and documented that Toronto Pearson is getting near capacity. And whenever, and that's defined by the number of aircraft that take off and land an, uh, an hour there. So when Toronto Pearson gets into weather problems or has anything that can cause delays, it wreaks havoc um, in the network. So uh, there is, um, and even Toronto Pearson is encouraging uh, uh, airports in southern Ontario to try to get more direct flights. Uh, and they're, you know, they're working with airlines on, on, trying to figure out the balance between what has to go through Pearson and what can go nonstop to to other hubs. So, you know, we've got now um, direct nonstop flights to to three of Air Canada's hubs, Montreal, Toronto, and uh, and Calgary now. And it it makes a big difference. If you don't have to go to Calgary and you're going to Western Canada, I don't see any reason why you wouldn't consider this Calgary flight. Is this something where you go to Air Canada or Air Canada goes to you, or what's that process like? Yeah, it's a little bit of both. Um, I mean, we've certainly got our foot on the gas pedal all the time with carriers trying to get them to fly, uh, you know, to new and and, uh, and different destinations out of here. And Air Canada, you know, they know what they're getting out of our market today. Um, you know, they're certainly aware of the swoop announcement that was made uh, about a month ago where we've got direct flights to uh, to Abbotsford, to Edmonton, and Halifax. And, you know, this is a competitive marketplace, and Air Canada doesn't want to give up market share, so they're going to fight it out. And it really is better for travelers uh, overall. And we've had this phenomenon called leakage where we have uh, people drive to other airports, uh, Toronto and Detroit mainly, if we can get better flights in here, better service, nonstop flights, we can curb that leakage, and there's enough business for all of these carriers. Is that leakage starting to turn around, do you think, or is it too early to tell? Well, it's uh, a little early to tell, yeah, because the, the swoop that's starting um, and the Air Canada are slated for this spring and, and summer. Uh, it, it's certainly significant, the leakage. We have a lot of leakage to people traveling to U.S. Des- destinations, and we're after, uh, you know, in winter flights to uh, to Florida, to Phoenix, to Vegas, those popular leisure southern destinations, as well as the Caribbean. So, you know, hopefully as uh, as we prove ourselves as a as an airport and a market for some of these destinations we've announced recently, that paves the way for additional flights, and when we get those, that'll help. Uh, curb that leakage as well. The airport's been adding pretty, you know, consistently for a little while now. Do you ever stop back and think of how different things were maybe five or even ten years ago? Well, yeah. As a matter of fact, in the last two months, we've really had a tidal wave come at us. Um, we we have the potential. This year, in 2018, we did uh, 536,000 passengers. Um, this year, we could do over a million. So, it's going to test us as an airport and as an operation and as a terminal building. Our runways and infrastructure is in good shape. But, you know, today we are looking at our flows and peak hours and what that means to arrivals and departures and do we have enough staff. So we're doing all that. And, you know, the good news is the answer is we think we can handle this. We're going to throw some some more resources at some of these peak times, but it's all doable and uh, it's phenomenal growth and it's really encouraging. Um, you know, we want a better airport. Our community wants a more vibrant uh, uh, and, and improved airport with more destinations. So, 
you know, our kind of attitude is bring it on and uh, and we'll deal with it. We're, the airport financially is in very good shape. So if we have to expand, Devin, to, uh, to accommodate, uh, you know, this sustained passenger growth, we can do that as well. That's quite the jump for passengers. Uh, I know it's been somewhat incremental, but that's a that's a big jump up. It's a huge jump. Um, you'll typically see airports chugging along at five, six, seven percent growth. I mean, when we have a hundred percent growth, it's uh, you know, it's kind of unheard of. But I mean, obviously, places like Pearson Airport that have forty-five, fifty million passengers a year—they're not going to double uh, in a year. That's just not possible. But smaller airports like ours, um, somebody adds three or four flights or five flights with large aircraft, and that's what we've got. Uh, that we've recently announced, it has a, uh, a significant effect on, on everything to do with f- from passenger numbers to, to how many cars park in our parking lot to, uh, our, you know, the flows in our terminal building. So it's going to be a challenge, but we're up for it. Well, it's good to see. As you said, we got uh, a Swoop uh, starting soon, uh, as soon as April uh, for some flights, uh, May others, and then uh, June with Air Canada. So uh, yep. it's getting even busier. It's going to be a busy summer, Devin. Mike, I appreciate the time. No problem. Thanks. Have a great day. That's Mike Seabrook, CEO of the London International Airport. We need to pause. When we come back, we'll have more of London Live. This is Devin Peacock in for Mike Stubbs on 980 CFPL. Welcome back to the program, everyone. We don't have a ton of time left in the show, but I wanted to talk about what it takes for people to change their mind on a subject. One of the reasons I want to do this is because of uh, the ongoing debate that's been going around on vaccinations uh, recently. Uh, There's no point in arguing about vaccinations or anything else, really, if no one's going to change their mind. I'm willing to consider that vaccinations are bad if there's evidence to prove it is and that evidence has been supported. Well, new research suggests that, in fact, we can let go of our opinions and that opposition can even turn into acceptance. For decades, research on confirmation bias has shown that we are more likely to look out for, notice and remember anything that confirms opinions we already hold. So, for example, you like drinking wine. There's studies that show that it's a good thing to drink wine. You are going to remember those types of pieces of research maybe more than others. Our brains are also faster at processing opinions we agree with. For a while, we have known that if you give people a list of factually incorrect sentences, they take longer to find grammatical errors than if these statements are true. So if the statement is soft, soap, or edible... People will take more time to spot the mistake in the grammar because the meaning is also inaccurate. And apparently the same happens with opinions. There was some research done by a researcher out of University of British Columbia. Her name's Kristen Lauren. She examined people's attitudes before plastic water bottles were prohibited in San Francisco. The ban was not a popular one, but it was introduced nonetheless. Just one day after it came in, her team again tested public attitudes and already views had changed. People were less opposed. There hadn't been time for people to change their behavior to adjust to the ban, so it seemed their mindset itself had changed. In other words, we rationalize things we have to deal with. 
It's as though our brain wants to free up space just to get on with our lives by deciding it's not so bad after all. Lauren likens this to a psychological immune system. She also looked at views on Ontario's uh, 2015 ban on smoking in parks and restaurant patios. She found that people didn't only change their opinions after the ban had been brought in, they also changed what they remembered about their own behavior. So before the ban, smokers told her that they did about 15% of their smoking in those public places. Afterwards, they estimated that only about 8% of their smoking had taken place in those areas. They had adjusted their own memories, altering their judgments to convince themselves the ban's effect wasn't so bad after all. So it's not that people simply become accustomed to a new situation. Instead, we actually change our thinking. It's as though we just cannot bear to be angry about this anymore. So we look for ways to convince ourselves it's going to be okay. Lauren doesn't believe this is done deliberately. Instead, it's a way of freeing up parts of our brain to get on with life. There just is not enough time to be mad about everything. There was a different uh, bunch of research that was done by uh, some researchers at Harvard. They've done dozens of experiments, and they have demonstrated that we imagine events in the future to be worse than they really are. So we expect the worst of bad events and the best of good events. In reality, both the good and the bad are never as good or bad. And so when something isn't as bad as we think, we feel a little bit better about it. This brings us around to vaccinations. Recent survey found 70% of people believe mandatory vaccinations uh, should be in place for children entering school. This study was done by Angus Reid Institute. It found an even higher number of adults, 83%, said they would vaccinate their children without hesitation. 24% said vaccinations should be a parent's choice. And more than 9 in 10 Canadians said they believe vaccines are effective. There have uh, been nine confirmed cases of measles in Vancouver this year, eight of which have been associated with two francophone schools. Data available on uh, school websites suggest many schools in that region have kindergarten measles vaccination rates well below levels needed to create a herd immunity. Uh, Some people just cannot be vaccinated, including uh, infants under uh, six months of age, people with certain underlying health conditions, and those undergoing uh, chemo. That means they must rely on levels of immunity within their communities to prevent those viruses. If you've listened to this radio station before, when I've been on at various shows, when I used to host my own show, you'll know I'm a big proponent of vaccination. So they work. There are legit reasons, though, as I just said, why some people can't take them, which is why it's important the rest of us do take them. If you don't believe in them or you are suspicious of them, I'm not going to call you names. I'm not going to insult you. I would just implore people to have an open mind about the research. When I read something that is anti-vaccine, I try to learn as much about what they're saying and who wrote it. And oftentimes it can be discredited or misrepresented. Sometimes these pieces of, I'll call it faux evidence, uh, are live along after they've been discredited, like the, the whole thing about flu shots causing autism. That has been widely discredited, has been for over 20 years, but it remains. 
but it's still on the internet. You need to have an open mind about this stuff. If you want others to be open-minded when you talk to them, I think it's only fair that you have the same approach when others are presenting information to you. This vaccination story is not going to go away. It's going to come around every single year. We seem to go around in circles on this, but it is important people have an open mind on this. I truly believe vaccinations can save lives, and I believe this because they already have, and they've done it for many, many years. But concerns about vaccination aren't exactly new. They've also been around for many, many years. I just implore people to have an open mind on this stuff. We need to pause. When we come back, we'll have more of London Live. This is Devin Peacock in for Mike Stubbs on 980 CFPL. Don't forget, you can hear the London Knights on 980 CFPL tonight. Mike Stubbs will have the call. The Knights host the Hamilton Bulldogs. Uh, pre-game starts at 6.30 on 980 CFPL. Puck drop is at 7.30. The London Knights also play on Sunday. They are home to North Bay. Those games, as all games, you can hear on 980 CFPL. My thanks to Mike Seabrook, Murray Faulkner, Barry Kirk, and Matt Fitzpatrick for coming on the show. Thanks to Matt McInnes for his work on the program. Today's audio gem is a clip from KSWT in Yuma, Arizona. This is a clip of everything going wrong for an anchor at the start of his newscast. Have a great weekend. Mike will be back with you on Monday at 1 o'clock. Good evening. I'm Mark Schofield. Glad to have you here on 13 on your side. In the government shutdown, just a moment, we'll, we've got some technical troubles here.